0: We've had two articles published recently on BMJ.com looking at drug prevention of HIV, but from different sides. Firstly, PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, and PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Neither prevent the virus entering the body, but they do prevent the infection from taking hold.
1: There are lots of questions that doctors have about these. What are the risk profiles of patients who should be offered the treatments? How can we prescribe them? What are the side effects? And if you're in England, where PrEP is not yet available on the NHS, can doctors advise their patients safely to buy it online? I'm Kat Chatfield, Clinical Editor at the BMJ.
0: I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and Associate Editor for the BMJ. And we're joined by Michael Brady. Michael, can you introduce yourself? Um,
2: yeah, so I'm Michael Brady. I'm My main job is I'm an HIV and sexual health consultant at King's College Hospital in South London, but I'm also the medical director at the Thames Higgins Trust. I work there a day a week.
1: So really, I wanted to start by talking about PEP. Um, can you just give us an idea of how we moved from treating HIV with antiretrovirals to the idea of giving people PEP to prevent transmission? And how long has that been going on for?
2: I guess we, we moved to it as we learned more and knew more about how HIV drugs work and how HIV infection establishes itself so we know that what happens when somebody gets exposed to hiv there is kind of a window of opportunity before an hiv infection becomes established in other words before it's kind of the point of no return Mm -hmm. there's 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 no cure for hiv at the moment so once it becomes established all you can do is suppress it and suppress it suppress it effectively with treatment so what happens when somebody gets exposed to hiv there's about maybe around 48 hours Mm -hmm. as the virus moves into the body. So what it tends to do is moves through the mucosal lining of wherever the exposure happens. So whether that's the rectum or the vagina and then gets picked up by the immune system and taken to local lymph nodes. And then in the local lymph nodes, it starts to replicate massively and then spreads around the body. It's that that sort of 24 to 48 hours before it gets to the lymph nodes where actually there's very little virus around relatively and it hasn't spread systemically that if you get treatment in, you can prevent the infection from becoming established. So that's essentially how PEP Mm-hmm. It's actually also how PrEP works, but it's essentially how post-exposure prophylaxis works, getting the treatment in early enough to stop an established infection.
1: And so you say that we've got this window of opportunity, but most of the guidance for PEP um, says use up to 72 hours. Is it likely to be less effective uh, the later on in that window that it's started?
2: Yeah, it is, basically. If you, if you if you need PEP, you need to take it as quickly as possible. I mean, the 72 hours comes from animal studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it must be the, the, the data supporting the use of pep is not the most robust um partly because it you know it's it wouldn't be ethical to do a study looking at pep you know you couldn't have a bunch of people who've been exposed to HIV and randomly assign half of them not to get anything so we we don't have a huge amount of data to support the use of pep but certainly animal studies have shown that uh, given up to 72 hours it prevented infections in in monkeys so that's really why we have the 72 hour thing but but really, I mean, I think most of us would say, most of us would say ideally within 24 hours. Okay. Personally, I would think, you know, by the time you get to about 48 hours, the chances of it being impactful are probably very small. But certainly we would give it up to 70, 72 hours, but yeah, you want to take it as soon as possible. So
1: there's definitely some urgency there. Is the doctor who may be the first point of contact or the professional who may be the first point of contact with the patient to make sure that this happens quickly.
2: Absolutely, and we would really encourage sort of a, an assessment as quickly as possible. Mm. So, if you assess that somebody is eligible for prep, for PEP, uh, that the, the the exposure has been risky enough, it's. It's best to to, to to do all of that assessment and maybe just give them their first dose as quickly as possible. I mean, if you then sub- if then all the patient subsequently decides that they don't want it or don't need it, you're not going to have done any harm. But it's 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 just worth getting it in as quickly as possible.
1: And that's certainly my experience of using it. Is sort of saying, well, you know, if we think there's risk, let's start, and then let's review and sort of in a few days, um, and see see where we are, and at least then you haven't missed your window of opportunity.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's generally what happens you when know, because a lot of if not. Most people get get their PEP started in in A&E because the sexual exposures happen usually outside of times that that some sexual health clinics uh, are open. So we'll then get them referred to us. And quite often then we we and the patient will make a a, a judgment or a a sort of re-risk assess. And it's not infrequent that people will then stop then mm. either because you know the dust has settled a little bit, they've they've had a bit more of a think about it, or it's given them a bit of time to find out some more about the HIV status of the person that they had the sex with. You know, mm. subsequent to that, they may find out that that person was HIV positive, but on treatment with an undetectable viral load, so wasn't a risk. So, yeah, the, the guy we would always just recommend start it as soon as you can, and then refer them to us, and we'll we'll reassess and continue if needs be.
1: And I think a lot of um, A&E settings from from my experience um, will often have. St- starter packs PEP ready or made up ready you know three three days worth to give time to refer and referral pathways but in general practice often that facility isn't there so what's kind of your advice to GPs who, who may end up being the first point of contact or out of hours GPs or regular GPs
2: yeah I mean I'd hope that every AE has a starter pack a five day pack so enough to tide people over even the longest bank holiday weekends um, so uh, I think the advice would be to just know that PEP is available uh, that it's best taken as soon as possible after the exposure. So if, if you're a, G- a GP working out of hours and gets contacted, um, advise them to go to their local A&E mm-hmm. uh, or their local sexual health clinic if it's open. Okay. Uh, but most sexual health clinics are not open
0: no. out of hours, you know, in evenings or over the weekend. Mm-hmm. I think as a GP, you can sometimes be agonising about, is the risk high enough? Should, should this person be referred to A&E or not? I suppose I'm hearing that... You know, even at what you perceive may be a very low risk. It's still justified to, to send that person onwards to A and E. Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if the if the patient's asking about it, which I imagine is what would be happening in this scenario, mm-hmm. so so if they've contacted you to ask about it, then they they at least perceive themselves to be at enough risk and they know about it. Mm-hmm. So it's, I would uh, yeah, as I said, I would just say refer, refer them on, and then you know, so, someone else can do a more detailed risk assessment. Uh, you know, in A and E, you know they're busy they may not have as much experience that's fine and you know that but they're all you know used to starting people on pep and you know it does no harm to give somebody some pep for a few days Mm -hmm. then they come and see us in the sexual health clinic when we do a more detailed risk assessment, and we would stop or continue based on what, what that shows.
1: One of the issues we had with the PEP article was that we we included a table with sort of guidance on what kind of exposures might be low risk or moderate risk mm. or high risk. So you mentioned the mucosal sort of surfaces mm. earlier, and sort of which which what type of sexual exposure might be more risky. Um, but we found it really hard to to quantify. Yeah. Um, can you talk any more about, for example, where something genuinely is low? risk and where it might be okay to offer reassurance uh, to, to someone who is as you said their perception is that they're at risk and they're often scared and anxious about it you know is, is there a situation where it's appropriate to reassure them and say look this is really not a risky situation
2: yeah i mean i think the, I, those tables are of varying use and i, and I think i mean they, they use i think they're useful for well, I like to think they're useful for clinicians, and I was really pleased that you, you, you add those, because at least it, it gives you some degree of context. If, if only it gives you the context of the fact that even the riskiest sexual activity is still relatively low risk for HIV. I mean, HIV is, is not the most efficient viruses at transmitting, and everybody, well, I have to say everybody, but a lot of people will have that sense that if I've had sex with somebody who's got HIV, then I'm just going to get it. In other words, the transmission rate is 100%. But you know, if you look at um, the, the bits of data that we have... You, even the the highest risk sex, so the the the, the riskiest sex, which is sort of a receptive or passive. Condomless anal intercourse with somebody who's HIV positive—you know—you're not definitely going to catch it. Even then, it's probably maybe one in fifty to one in a hundred your chance of, mm-hmm. of catching HIV. So, those tables with risk can be useful to contact, uh, to put things into context, and I think they can also be useful for the other end of the spectrum—the lower risk sexual activity, so sex with somebody from a country where HIV is still relatively uncommon. So, so you know, certainly that would be the case for UK-born white heterosexuals. Um, it's not the case for sub-Saharan-born uh, black Africans. But, you know, so, so knowing that the, um, the risk can be very low based on, on where somebody comes from or what their sexuality is. So the the table's obviously split up between men who have sex with men and, and uh, heterosexuals. And also the ca- the type of the type of sex so, so so showing that for example, oral sex is extremely low low risk. So I think they use they're useful. To put a context in, sometimes I use them to to reassure patients, but you have to be a little bit careful sometimes about using the numbers though, because you you can get a little bit tied up in knots if you started talking about you know one in a hundred, one in a thousand, because you know um, it, 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 obviously because the whole concept of risk, even if it's one in a billion, somebody has to be that yeah. that one. Yeah. So the actual numbers are not that useful, but the 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 the, the context and the relative mm-hmm. risk I think is very helpful, and it can it can it can. I think give you the confidence to say you don't need pep, and that's often the hardest thing. It's easier to say take it than it is to say don't take it because you, you know the patient is really anxious. Mm. You're kind of thinking, well, what if this is the one that gets it, and I'm the one that didn't give him the pep, <laughs> uh, you know. So you have to be confident about about the the risk, but. So a good example now is is you know because those tables have been updated to, mm. to to add what we know about uh, various viral loads or if somebody's HIV positive and on treatment with an undetectable viral load they can't pass the virus on so you know that's a, that's a good scenario where if somebody comes in asking for PEP and they say well my, my the guy I had sex with told me is is HIV positive but he's undetectable mm. you can be absolutely confident that you do not need to give that mm. person.
1: I think pep. that kind of undetectable, untransmissible. I think yeah. that certainly. Has has changed in our understanding from when I was was working in sexual health, and so I think it's really important that that we are able to let people know that you know we can be really reassuring in that situation.
2: No, that's true, and I think it was it, it has massively changed just just in the last couple of years. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, with w- um, recent studies like the partner study, we we you know we've moved from a kind of very low risk, probably unlikely, you know, I doubt it's going to happen to a definitive, absolute, if you're on HIV treatment with an undetectable and sustained, ongoing undetectable viral load, mm. there is a zero risk of transmission. Mm. So the definitiveness
0: and the absoluteness mm. of how we, of the language we use has really changed, mm. for sure. Yeah. It's
1: really helpful.
0: And um, for those people, because um, we're in, in general practice, we're, we're often, you know, the whole family um, and we may know that one person has HIV with an undetectable viral load. Um, is that person? Do they need to to tell their their loved ones, their, their, somebody that their partner that they have HIV? In that case, yeah.
2: So I mean, it's it, it has the, this the, the knowledge about the undetectable equals untransmittable has shifted our approach to disclosure and advice around disclosure. I think there are different reasons and different settings why people may or may not need to disclose their HIV status so in in that scenario you know uh, somebody in a, in a family a member of a family who's HIV positive and undetectable I mean there may be a reason to disclose if we want to or need to test their sexual partner so a key part of when somebody's diagnosed with HIV obviously is doing partner notification and trying to uh, dis- disclose that to certain certainly recent sexual partners so that we can identify any undiagnosed infection in those so in that scenario then that may be maybe a requirement you know if they've a, a a partner who's untested um, but other than that that there's in in the sort of family setting there's not a, a reason to disclose i mean we we always encourage and support people living with hiv to disclose their status to, you know to significant others to partners to, to family members it recognizing that that's not always an easy thing to do you know hiv still remains you know, probably one of the most if not the most stigmatized mm-hmm. diseases you know so I think it is very difficult for a lot of people to to disclose their status or they have a lot of anxiety about doing that and still people get very bad uh, can experience very bad uh, reactions to, after they disclose but just in the sense of it's such a massive thing you know it's you know it's, it's a it's a lifelong chronic disease and it's something that is an important part of you as an individual so it's it's a helpful thing to disclose to others. so in that in that setting other than if we were concerned that there was a, a perhaps a risk of somebody like their partner being positive, there's time for them and that's the other advantage of this undetectable equals untransmissible it gives people time mm. because you can be confident that you, you don't have a transmission risk so that's that's not your pressure of time and you can we can you know, take a bit of time to support people to get to the point of disclosure. The disclosure thing in um, sort of maybe casual or uh, one-off sexual relationships is a little bit different. I mean, I think the the u in the sense that you know, we we talk about criminalisation mm-hmm. of HIV and, and reckless transmission of HIV, and certainly people have been sent to prison for rec- recklessly uh, transmitting. So the u equals u message has also changed our approach around. That so when we always talk to people about the risks of transmission, obviously, and then also the risks of the criminalization if if that if that happens, I think in the past before the U equals U thing, it was very much more of a kind of a warning thing. You know, it's like well, you know, you better just w- w- watch out. You know, the, the safe the safest way to protect yourself from somebody accusing you of uh, recklessly transmitting is to disclose your status, because if you disclose, then your partner's consented to the sex that you have, or you have to use condoms to demonstrate that you're taking all of the precautions to prevent a transmission. Now we know that U equals U is so definitive and that, that, that when somebody's is undetectable there is a zero risk of transmission. It really changes that discussion around criminalization because you can be really confident that if you're on treatment and you're undetectable you're not going to transmit. Mm-hmm. So it's not ever going to be an issue. So it, it, it means that it takes some of the stress and the responsibility of disclosure around a sexual encounter away.
1: So it sort of seems a good opportunity to start talking about prep, yes. given that we're talking about kind of more casual mm. uh, sexual encounters and how we might approach that and approach uh, protecting people from transmission in that environment. Tom, do you want to ask a bit about yeah, prep? So,
0: I mean, so in a similar way with the the PEP, I'm, I'm interested to know how that came about, how how it. Who, whose idea was it even that that this would be an effective way of preventing transmission? Yeah, do you know? I don't know whose <laughs> idea
2: was. They ought to have a Nobel Prize or something. <laughs> they? I mean, I think I think the concept of prep uh, uh, evolved from um, you know a knowledge about HIV life cycle, the benefits of PEP post-exposure prophylaxis, because it kind of makes sense that if we know that um, by taking HIV therapy very soon after an exposure to stop and and an infection becoming established, Mm -hmm. if you took it before the exposure, then the likelihood that 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 would at least be as effective, if not more effective, which is what it's been shown to be. So essentially, I guess, pre-exposure prophylaxis was a natural evolution from post-exposure prophylaxis and there were lots of studies, I mean I remember hearing about pre-exposure prophylaxis maybe 15-20 years ago so the, the concept of it and some of the early studies yeah. uh, you know happened a long time ago. So it's actually taken quite a long
0: time to to get to this point
2: yeah it's taken quite a long time to get this point um and that, i don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing you know because you know, to 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 move to get to where we are today we needed a lot of studies, you know, to really to demonstrate that it's effective, that it's safe, um, that it's, you know, worth investing in it as, a, as a prevention strategy. Um, so, and some of the, you know, certainly the, the earlier and the larger human studies were many years ago, and some of the early studies were actually not, um, uh, it didn't demonstrate as much efficacy as some, as some of the more recent studies, because... In the early days of PrEP um, adherence to the medication wasn't very good, the early studies were placebo controlled trials so if you were in it you didn't know whether you were taking the active drug or not which certainly impacted on people's adherence or their ability to take it so some of the early studies um, didn't show uh, it to be effective because mostly because people weren't taking it as 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 prescribed but a lot of the later studies and um, particularly i mean the, the main one that we talk about in the uk is the proud study um which didn't have a placebo in it, it, it the control arm was what we call the deferred group so it's a, a, a group of, of of higher risk gay men who were randomized either to take the prep straight away or to wait a year so it's the deferred group that became the control so everybody who was taking it Knew they were taking active drug, mm-hmm. um, and that showed an eighty-six percent reduction. So, uh, in HIV uh, acquisitions, and a, there was a similar study called the EpiGay study that, w- that reported at the same time in in France, which looked at what we call on-demand or event-based dosing. So, but those and um, more recent studies are the really the ones that are driving, um, you know, the, our policy and our practice around
0: around prep because they've shown so much. Uh, so, when you're talking to a Somebody about you know what what is the risk and how can I reduce that with prep I mean, how, how do you translate that evidence into some practical advice yeah
2: i, mean, I think it's one of the one of the fundamental challenges around prep is risk assessment and identifying those who are at risk mm. um, you know it's important in you know you know in our publicly funded resource limited health setting that we know that a the money that we spend on a drug whatever it is and that that's been a challenge around prep, it must be said, over the over the few years, and is one of the reasons why I think we're still not in the situation that we've got equitable access to prep across the United Kingdom. You know, you can get it on the NHS in Scotland, but you can't yet in in England. You have to access it through a trial. So it, 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 the the cost effectiveness basically is is a, is, is a fundamental is fundamentally um, informed by. The cost of the drug and the likelihood of the person that you're giving it to of getting HIV. So if you give the drug to the people who've got extremely low risk, it, it, it's there's no there's no point. You know that's a waste of money. If you give it to people who've got very high risks of HIV, it's extremely cost effective because the drug is really cheap now. We use generic versions, which is which is sort of ninety five percent cheaper than the branded drug. So it's really important that we give it to people who are at the greatest risk because then we're getting the maximal impact. Now we have relatively good data on men who have sex with men that helps us to identify risk. The reason that we've got good data on, on, on men who have sex with men is that they tend to attend sexual health clinics, perhaps um, um, as a group, more frequently than than others. So we've got lots of longitudinal data on you know many thousands. Or hundreds of thousands of, of visits to, to sexual health clinics. And, w- and when somebody comes to a sexual health clinic, we have um, a really good sort of national surveillance system. So we record anonymously, there's no sort of identifiable information, but we record the tests that people have had and what diagnosis they, they've had. So we've got relatively good data on the incidence of HIV in gay men who attend sexual health clinics, and we can see from that what the risk factors are. So we know that gay men who report having condomless anal sex in the last six to 12 months are at much greater risk of HIV acquisition. Gay men who report having a sexually transmitted infection, uh, a bacterial sexually transmitted infection in the last 12 months, much greater risk of HIV acquisition, particularly if that infection was a rectal infection gay men who report, um, you, uh, having had post-exposure prophylaxis in the last 12 months, much greater um, uh, risk of HIV, HIV acquisition. So there are markers yep. that, are relative, that are relatively easy, just from the simple history, have you had PEP, have you had an STI, have you had sex without a condom in the last year, which helps us to identify the gay men who are at greater risk, so that's relatively easy. Mm-hmm. The challenge on the risk assessment is for those other groups who are not men who have sex with men, where the, the, the general background level of HIV is relatively low, but for some groups mm. it's much higher. Mm. So you know, the heterosexuals, black African heterosexuals, trans women, trans men, injecting drug users, they're, they're, they're all at greater risk um, but then uh, compared to the, the background population, but they don't all have the high level of risk that, that would make it very cost effective and also they don't have relatively simple things that we can ask in a history to define the riskier ones from the non risky ones and that's been a real challenge um, in terms of identifying people who would benefit from from PrEP.
1: So I guess the take-home message for me, for busy clinicians who may be GPs or maybe an A&E is that um, to think about potential for PrEP in patients who might have a higher than background risk and then for patients who have a high higher risk like men who have sex with men to think about asking those questions about have they had a sexually transmitted infection in the last 12 months a bacterial STI um, have they taken PEP in the last twelve months? Uh, and I've forgotten the third <laughs> the question. Third one is, you and actually, me. probably the most condomless yes. Yes. anal intercourse so or condomless sex with that condom yeah. in the
2: last six months. Yeah. And and the, the other thing would be and do you think you're likely to do it again? To
1: continue because
2: you know sometimes you know people are 100 percent perfect at using condoms and the condom breaks or it's just a little bit of a slip up but they know that person's. You know, not a risk for HIV. So, so if you're only going to do one question, it would be: Have you had condomless anal sex in the last six months, and do you think that's likely to happen again? The other things are kind of just extra evidence. You know, so so and just because we know that that starts to bump up your, your your incidence risk, like the you know a recent STI, a, a bacterial uh, and particularly rectal or or PEP use. So, if you're only going to do one question for gay men, is: Have you had condomless sex in the last six months, and do you think you're likely to do it again? i
1: and then perhaps to start a break the discussion might have you thought about PrEP
2: yeah exactly because it, 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 again it's just a way into that broader sexual health thing because mm-hmm. the answer to that might be yes but that person's solution for that may not be PrEP mm-hmm. you know that, that, that may have been a, a one off or it may be that they, they feel you know it's, and I'm, I'm really back on it and I'm using condoms perfectly or actually my I'm, and I'm in a monogamous relationship my partner's positive but he's got an undetectable viral load mm-hmm. so it just gets you into the discussion doesn't necessarily mean that at the all of those who answer yes to, mm-hmm. to that need prep. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, so so you so, the, so it goes back to I think we, we, yeah the, the, just the concept that that risk assessment is much easier in men who have sex with men because mm-hmm. you can essentially get into it with just one question. Mm-hmm. It's much harder for, for the other group. So if you're a heterosexual Zambian woman or trans woman or trans man, you know the answer. The answer to have you had condomless sex in the last six months? If the answer to that is yes, it doesn't put, automatically put you into such a high risk, Mm -hmm. which is why it's uh, in the guidelines, the the Beaver Bash guidelines, we've tried to pull this table together, which gives us some other indicators, so the assessment needs to be a little bit broader, Mm -hmm. you know, so then it's about, you know, is that with multiple partners, Mm -hmm. then it's more useful to ask about recent um, sexually transmitted infections. Mm Then it's more useful to ask about where the partner's from. Mm -hmm. You know, is it somebody, do they have a partner that's, you know, from, I don't know, Botswana that's going back there on business a lot? Mm -hmm. Um, Then it's perhaps more like to think about broader social determinants like mental health problems, drug and alcohol problems, recent migration, uh, sort of sexual health autonomy things mm-hmm. which starts to get a little bit more complex and time consuming mm-hmm. but I think if, if, if you're starting to get as a GP if you're starting to get a bit of a, a flag or a sense you know, and you don't have time or, you know, or maybe there's an opportunity to bring them back another time well certainly there's an opportunity to, to refer them to a sexual health clinic i mean i guess the challenge then is is that 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 may not always be acceptable to the to the patient you know so it may be something that you need to keep in general practice for a little while as you're building up that relationship because it's not easy to get from the point of i'm an individual who doesn't perceive myself to be at risk to i'm going to the clinic and going to get some prep and that may take quite a bit of Time. But I think the other thing is, you know, if, if if people don't want to come up to the sexual health clinic, we're, we're very happy to, you know, if the GP should just give us a call. Um, say, look, I've got this woman who I think is a bit at risk. What what would you advise? You know, we can we can give some some tips about how to approach it. You know, I'm not necessarily necessarily promising this for all of my colleagues, but you know, I would pop down and you know, I'll come down and see them. You know, I just think that we we need to get more creative at this bridge mm. between general practices and sexual health services. We need to be a little bit more creative about how we support uh, better testing, risk assessment, discussions around and referral for things like like prep. Can you tell us about
0: how um, to start taking prep? When does it become effective?
2: Yeah, so it the advice is slightly different depending on who you are um because prep works differently in different compartments of the body. Um so its protective effect is is different if you're taking it uh, to to prevent transmission through anal sex, for example, compared to vaginal sex. The reason for that is the drugs in in PrEP, tenofovir and m and tenofovir particularly, concentrate very quickly in rectal tissue or in tissue of the lower gastrointestinal tract and take longer to concentrate in the female genital tract or in the blood. So your protective levels are achieved slightly slower in the vagina and the blood than they are in the rectum. So it's basically, it's because of the pharmacokinetics of the drug being different in different compartments, which is why the dosing is different. So it's not, I mean, it's not a gay man thing, it's a, a rectum thing. So if you were a heterosexual woman who was only having anal sex uh, which I suspect is probably not very common but if that were the case then you could use on-demand I'm sure there's no studies to prove that but there's no reason why to think that yeah that that wouldn't be the case so so it's about the kind of sex you have so so we'd recommend for for gay men that a double dose so when you're starting prep whether you're going to take it daily or whether you're going to take it on demand you take a double dose when you start because that means that you're covered straight away Uh, a double dose between two and 24 hours before the first condomless sex and then you continue to take it and then you need to take when you when your risk has stopped so you're saying right i don't need to take prep anymore you just take one tablet 24 hours and one tablet 48 hours after the last condomless sex so for anal sex which is predominantly for for men men but basically for people having anal sex you can start very quickly and stop very quickly for other types of sex was is essentially about vaginal sex or um, uh, sex for trans uh, women or trans men that is not rectal sex or whether that's vaginal sex or a, or a neo-vagina if you've had a, a vagina fashioned the, uh, the advice generally, there's a little, little, little less data but certainly the drug concentrates less quickly uh, so you need to take, uh, we would recommend taking a daily dose every day for seven days before you you can say confidently you've got protection and then when you're ready to stop you take a daily dose for seven days after your last condomless sex so it's slightly longer to get to the protective levels and you need to take it slightly slightly longer when you're ready to, to stop. Now it doesn't It doesn't mean that you're not protected and there will be variation between people. But I think if you said to me, how can I be really sure that my vaginal sex is protected? I'd say take it daily for for seven days
0: what is the risk of taking PrEP over a longer period of time we, we think that there isn't any major risk um, we've
2: mentioned some of the, 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 the renal function yeah. thing That I think that's the only thing that you, you would say but even that it happens very rarely mm-hmm. most people are completely fine don't have any side effects and don't have any kidney problems if it does happen certainly the, the studies have shown that any reduction in your renal function is, is very small yep. and actually often just within your normal range, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking like reduction to maybe 1 or 2% on your of your uh, creatinine clearance, so probably not clinically significant. It's reversible, so when you reduce the dose or stop the prep, your renal function goes back to normal. So, whilst but, nobody's ever taken it for decades, right. our, uh, what we know so far is that it would probably be safe, almost certainly be safe and any of the problems are very easy to monitor for and manage. There's
0: something about bone mineral density that that was also mentioned.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We know a little bit less about bone mineral density, again, because in the studies, there were, again, small reductions in bone mineral density, Mm. no sort of clinical impacts, and no reported increased risk of fractures. I think the problem about that is you're looking at a generally a young well population whose background uh, risk for bone problems is relatively low so to see a difference you need a massive study and follow them up for longer and also the studies probably didn't follow people up for long enough so what we can say at the moment is that from the studies there's not in in people who are otherwise healthy and don't have any sort of bone mineral risks we're not really we're not concerned about it and there's no indication for Monitoring of, of of bone problems, like you know, doing DEXA scans or anything. I think if you saw somebody that that had background risk, and you know, maybe somebody that was on long-term steroids, or a postmenopausal woman, or somebody whose whose bone mineral density osteoporosis risk was higher, yeah. we would do some monitoring, but the, the the recommendation at the moment is that, that you don't need to do that for everybody else. That may change as time goes by. I mean, I think in terms of sort of lifelong use of PrEP, we're just in the early days. I mean, I think our expectation is that, you know, people won't take it for a lifetime. You know, your risk will come and go. Um, and therefore,
0: uh, you know, that will also prevent sort of long-term harms. Uh, so, so how often should that risk be reassessed?
2: Um, <laughs> Probably every three months, I'd say. I mean, generally, we recommend having a, a, a review visit every three months. Um, if we're prescribing PrEP, that's as long as we can give a prescription for. That's when we'd reckon, recommend is the sort of the minimal frequency for doing STI testing. Um, so we would reassess every, every every three months. And clearly, somebody's risk will change. It depends a little bit on what their initial initial uh, risk Was I mean, obviously, well, certainly when we're using it, we're using it around a a sexual risk. So it just depends on what's happening with somebody's sort of sex life. So, you know, when someone enters a period of no sex or 100% condom use Mm -hmm. or monogamy with a partner whose HIV status they know, then that's a period of time when they don't need PrEP. And uh, as we're starting to move through getting more experience with the IMPACT trial, we're starting to see that happen. So certainly um, we're already seeing people who have stopped taking their PrEP for a while because maybe they've got a boyfriend and they've both had an HIV test and they know what their status is and the boyfriend might be negative as well or the boyfriend might be positive and and on treatment with an undetectable viral load so they enter a period of time when they don't need Mm -hmm. PrEP. Now that might change Um, so you know if that relationship finishes and the risk goes back up again.
0: So we re-risk assess every every three months. Do you ever get situations where your perception of the risk may be very different from, from that of the, the person taking the PrEP? Yes. Um, so,
2: <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had a couple of people who've come in and wanted PrEP, um, but really didn't have any risk at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, both were heterosexuals and both were using condoms all the time so it, it, for two reasons therefore that for me their background risk was mm-hmm. was was uh, you know not enough to make it worth worthwhile taking prep in, in both those situations i mean it's, it's not uncommon actually in this in the sexual health clinic to see people mm-hmm. who have a you know, uh, uh, overestimate their 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 risk. Certainly around HIV. You know, there's a lot of anxiety, particularly of us that are old enough to remember the tombstones and the icebergs and the "Don't die of Ignorance" uh, campaigns. And there's a lot of uh, of anxiety, so it's not it's not uncommon for people to come in really freaked out about HIV. But then you know, and you actually someone asking, you know, have you thought about pregnancy or chlamydia or one of the things that yeah. are much yeah, much more likely to happen? So, so yeah, I mean, so in those in those two yeah. situations, I mean, it wasn't there wasn't a particularly difficult. Well, I didn't find it a difficult con- no. consultation. I mean, I think I you know, I said to them, look, you know, if you want to go and buy your own prep, that's fine, but you know, I'm not going to, or I can't prescribe it for you.
0: Uh, another area that would um, be interesting to, to talk about is um, does is there any evidence looking at the other effects of taking PrEP, for instance, on instance of uh, other STIs? Yeah,
2: so the other STIs thing (laughs) is also a challenge around PrEP. I mean, I think it's interesting, actually, because I've been working in thinking about, talking about PrEP for many years, and, you know, the challenges one gets around PrEP have changed over time. Um, You know, it's it's quite interesting looking at, even just a few years ago, you know, there was quite a strong anti-PrEP Brigade, mm-hmm. which um, you know, which is supported by the media, you know, um, and it's, you know, no, it's really interesting. In and I think there's real echoes of of other aspects of HIV. You know that that it, you know it's a, there's, has a strong social mm-hmm. and again inverted commas a moral aspect to it. It shouldn't have because it's just a, an infection and disease. But you know, the how society sees it and treats it is very different. Mm-hmm. You know, so the concept of giving a tablet, or the NHS paying for a tablet, to give to somebody who was recklessly having condomless sex, you know, was really challenging for people who read certain... Daily Mail type newspapers. Yeah. Well, know it's the same kind of arguments, isn't it? I know, and, and, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, we didn't get to the point that we did in the sixties, where women had to come in and show their wedding rings before they were allowed to be <laughs> prescribed the oral contraceptive, usually by a male gynecologist. Yeah. So, um, but it's, it's it's a similar thing, and if we give them this drug, they're going to yeah you know get terribly promiscuous but but, it, it, but
0: then there are there are things that
2: no, do need to be looked at no there are definitely in, in. so whilst i'm so I'm not saying that there's not a, not an issue but i but I, I think i start i think i started off my thinking of my answer around that, yeah. <laughs> in the sense that it, it's it, it's been used as a as a stick sure, to beat yeah. the, the the prep users or to demonize prep users or, or 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 prep advocates this um sense that oh well it's just an irresponsibility you know why can't they just use condoms you know it's just to it just encourages gay men to have reckless lives Um, but having said that, the issue of sexually transmitted infections is a real one um, and one that we do need to kind of be mindful of and and be and, and keep an eye on. I guess the, the the main thing around that sort of moralizing around PrEP is first first of all, whilst um, you know a lot of the studies about its effectiveness and most people who are taking it in the Western world are men who have sex with men. You know, it's not a drug for men who have sex with men. It's mm-hmm. an, it's an HIV prevention tool that works brilliantly for everybody. In fact, globally, like the HIV epidemic globally, most people who are taking PrEP or taking HIV therapy are heterosexuals, not, not gay men. So it's not a gay drug, well, a drug for gay men. It's a really effective uh, HIV prevention tool. The second thing also is, is, is I think, that you know, around sexually transmitted infections, if we look just at gay men who are disproportionately affected by or at risk of sexually transmitted infections, the rates of STIs in that group have been going up for multiple reasons for the last decade or so. So PrEP has arrived at a time when STI rates are going up anyway, PrEP hasn't, or certainly to date there isn't any evidence that PrEP has forced forced that up any further. Um, certainly less in the studies but actually more in our, our sort of real life experience after the study's finished we are seeing less condom use in men gay men and it's mostly gay men because that's mostly who's taking PrEP at the moment in the UK are using condoms? some of them some people are using condoms slightly less often than they were before I mean it's, it's important to note that all of them were not using condoms 100% of the time before anyway. By definition, that's why they're on on mm. PrEP. So, you know, that this you know this is a group who are not using condoms 100% of the time anyway and a group who already have high rates of STIs. I think um, we, we to, to really understand the longer-term impact, we need a little bit more data. We need to use it on more people for longer. And I think that will be one of the useful things about the current impact trial, which is being run in England, which at the moment is the only way you can access PrEP in England, which is recruiting uh, 13,000 people and following them up over, I think it's, it's going to run for, for three years in total, and we'll be able to look at some of, how, some of the behavioural changes on PrEP, we'll be able to look at uh, the impact on, obviously on HIV incidents, but also on the incidence of sexually transmitted infections, so I think that will be a really useful outcome from the impact trial. Mm. For us to be able to really look at what does happen with sexually transmitted infections. Now, I I believe that actually what we'll see over time is a reduction in sexually transmitted Mm. infections because I think the way to think of PrEP is, you know, PrEP is not seeing PrEP in isolation. Mm. PrEP is, is, and this is kind of how we deliver PrEP services, is part of a wider, more holistic approach to sexual and reproductive good health, by which I mean that people, whether they're gay men or heterosexual uh, women, who are at risk, at greater risk of H- of HIV, are at greater risk of other things as well. So their rates of mental health problems, drug and alcohol problems, unplanned pregnancies, sexually transmitted infections are much higher. So we see PrEP provision as being part of a wider sort of prevention strategy. So when you come into the PrEP clinic, you don't just, we don't just go and oh, they go, there's your, there's your PrEP, <laughs> off you go. Yeah. You know, we and and, uh, this is certainly the case in my clinic, and I know it's the same in lots of other services around the country. So we run our PrEP clinic on the same day that we run our Chemsex clinic. Um, uh, so because a lot of uh, gay men particularly may well have Chemsex or drug and alcohol problems so we can integrate it with that. We have um, a, you know easy access to a full range of contraception. So for women who are on PrEP that have got an ongoing pregnancy risk that maybe aren't accessing contraception can can get that. Get that. We've got really good links with our local sort of mental health services so we mm-hmm. can integrate people with that so it's part of a package of risk reduction and i think also there will be benefits of increasing the frequency of, a, of sti testing mm-hmm. so to get your prep you've got to come into the clinic every three months and every three months we'll do you a full sti screen um now that's sort of four, at least four sti screens a year in a group who are have a high background risk of STIs and probably were not all having four STI screens a year before. So there's a real opportunity for us to do some prevention interventions, diagnose infections earlier, treat them earlier,
0: and sort of break that cycle of transmission. But you can get PrEP online. Can you offer the same... Level of um, of interventions that you just mentioned when when you go to one of the the websites to to order it online. You, well, you can get prep online, and it's that's an important thing to know because certainly
2: across the UK. Not everybody who needs prep can get prep on the NHS. You can if you're in Scotland. So if you need prep, you can just go to your local sexual health service in Scotland. Similar situation in in, in Wales, and there's a there's also a prep service in Northern Ireland that started up about six months ago. In England, as, as I mentioned before, we have the impact trial, which is which is restricted. So there are currently uh, thirteen thousand places, um, and about ninety percent of those are for. Men who have sex with men, and ten percent of those places for are for other groups. <laughs> I was going to say most services I think probably fair to say most large clinics particularly those in London and the other cities are now full mm-hmm. for men who have sex with men so certainly at King's we've filled all of our men who, uh, places for MSM mm-hmm. men who have sex with men so if you're a high risk gay man that comes into my clinic and it's probably the same at the other large clinics around London mm-hmm. who needs prep I can't give it to you mm-hmm. because I don't have any more places on the, uh, on the trial which is Mm. Tr- uh, troubling, I would yeah. say. You know, and you know, anecdotally, you know, we're hearing about people who are acquiring HIV for the want of prep because there weren't any places on the trial. Mm. So, what we strongly recommend is that people buy it themselves, and you can go online and order uh, your own uh, short supply of prep, um, and this is completely legal. And has been legal for, for a long time. It, there are a few uh, sort of rules about that, and it's not just prep. You can do this for any other medication. So, um, and we've uh, or many of us colleagues um, uh, have checked with the MH, MRHA about this. That essentially, if you go online, and I think the rule is that it has to, has you have to order it from a. I think it has to be supplied from outside of the EU. It has to be for personal use only, which means that you can only get three months at a time. You don't necessarily need to have a prescription. Some online pharmacies uh, will ask you to provide a pre- prescription, but some of them don't. So there are many uh, online pharmacies where you can go and buy your own PrEP. They'll only You can only have a three-month supply um, because that's what makes it a professional for personal use only um, and if people want to find out more about that the best place to go is uh, there's lots of websites but I'd recommend iwantprepnow.co.uk which uh, is uh, has been set up by um, a guy called Greg Owen many years ago. who's now part of the Terrence Higgins Trust, uh, which has got loads of really great information about prep uh, for clinicians and for for, people, for for you know for the general public. Okay. Links to other relevant uh, websites, and then if you want to or need to go on and buy your own prep, there are links to a number of online pharmacies through that mm. that website. So you can buy your own PrEP, but obviously you, know, the, you don't get any testing or monitoring with that, and I think that's that's really important. So what we'd advise people to do is there's a number of key things. One is, if you're buying your own PrEP, you need to be sure that you're HIV negative when you start the, the PrEP. The reason for that is that the drugs we use in PrEP are, there's two drugs called tenofovir and m They're both drugs that we've been using for many years to treat HIV. They're both very safe but it's just two drugs. Mm. Uh, and if we were treating HIV, we'd usually use at least three drugs. So if you're HIV positive and don't know it and start taking PrEP, there is a risk that you might develop resistance because in other words, you'd be kind of be partially treating the infection. So the, the key thing, if you're doing it yourself, is first of all, make sure that you know that you're HIV negative. Um, now, you, and this kind of like gets into things about window periods with, with tests. The, be, the best test to, to do that quickly mm-hmm. is is a blood test which you can get at your GP or at a sexual health clinic, because which gets sent to the lab because that's what's that's got a window period of what we uh, of, of about four weeks. Which means when you get a negative result, you were you were HIV negative four weeks ago. Um, so it, it, you need to have one of those tests before you start before you start prep. You don't have to you don't have to um, wait to start your prep to get the results back but you just need to be sure you've confirmed that you're negative you know in those first few weeks of taking the prep that's really important then the other bit that we'd recommend is um, regular STI checks so that you know there are Clearly, if you're, if you're using condoms less often, the prep is gonna stop you from getting HIV, but it's not gonna stop you from getting pregnant or getting gonorrhea or chlamydia. So you need to, if you're a, a woman and don't want to be pregnant, make sure you've got um, reliable contraception. Uh, and if you're anyone, have we'd recommend tests for sexually transmitted infections every three months. So all of that stuff you can get done in the clinic. So even if you're buying your own prep and you're not getting it through the impact trial, you could you should certainly go to a sexual health clinic because we
0: would certainly see you and do all the monitoring tests. Would you say to, to GPs who may have patients coming to see them, you know, maybe asking the GP if they could do the monitoring and 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 so on. I,
2: mean, I would I would encourage GPs to do that um, or. Um, or, and or refer to their local sexual health service where they can do that the monitoring is relatively simple the other thing just to mention about PrEP and its safety is about kidney function um, so we know from many years of using it in people living with HIV tenofovir one of the drugs in PrEP can after long-term use cause reductions in kidney function Um now, in the studies uh, looking at PrEP, they didn't really see much of a problem. Um, uh, and clearly, so giving PrEP to people who are HIV negative is different from giving the same drugs to people who are HIV positive. In the studies, they, sh- they saw very small but reversible uh, reductions in renal function. Um, but those changes were more marked if you had a risk for renal disease, so if you are older, so over the age of forty, unfortunately, is now a definition of older, but over forty, you know, if you had diabetes or hypertension or you were on uh, nephrotoxic drugs, the risk was a little bit higher. So we recommend renal monitoring as well. And so if you're young, under forty, with no risks, we recommend it once a year. That's just use and ease. Um, Uh, But if you have any of those other risks, more frequently, every three to six months. So someone might come to the GP asking for a a UNEs or an STI checkup uh, if they're sourcing the PrEP themselves. If they're not sourcing it themselves, they probably wouldn't come to the GP because they'd be coming to the sexual health clinic. So I would encourage people to do that. We, um, when we were writing the prep guidelines, the Beaver Bash prep guidelines, we took advice from the GMC, particularly around this. You know, you know what, what's their position around recommending somebody to go to a website or doing renal monitoring in somebody who's buying their own prep. And they were very clear that it falls within their recommendations of good medical practice that if we know that there is something that is as impactful as PrEP we. but but the only way somebody can get it is to go online and buy their own. We have a responsibility to inform people about that and if somebody is going online to buy their own we have a responsibility to support them to do that as safely as possible particularly if that means just a really cheap use and ease.
1: So uh, thinking about the IMPACT trial and thinking about this group of patients that we don't necessarily know that much about who have a higher background risk of HIV acquisition than the rest than the general population not as high probably as many who have sex with men it sounds like there are possibly still places available in the impact trial for those people um and I, my assumption is that they might be people who hadn't necessarily considered PrEP or themselves be at risk of PrEP so I wonder if there's a role as gps or other clinicians here to sort of be thinking about when we see those patients who you know might have a partner from a country that with a higher incidence of hiv or you know to think about should we be having that discussion with them about prep signposting them to the trial I, i don't know do you think that's going to be a group that's difficult to recruit for the study
2: uh, it is it, or, it is already proving to be a group that's difficult to recruit to the study and yes I do think there is a real role of general practice to, to help us to, to do that I mean one of the, the primary issues is that different groups at, at risk of HIV have different levels of knowledge and awareness it, it's it, in gay men it's relatively high particularly white UK born city dwelling gay men most people know about prep something about prep or on it or have a partner on it or a friend who's on it so the knowledge around it is is much higher Uh, in the other groups so heterosexuals um, migrants uh, people born outside the UK or in countries where HIV is more common trans communities the level of of knowledge is much much lower so we're starting from a very different point the other challenge is that at the moment the model of care whatever country in the UK you're in, is that PrEP is delivered through sexual health clinics. So you kind of have to access a sexual health clinic to, to, to be told about it or certainly to get it, which adds to that kind of inequity of access because gay men go to sexual health clinics more often, other groups with, with similar risk don't go there that often. So for us to engage with those communities, inform them about PrEP. And, and support them to access PrEP, we're going to have to take the, the message about PrEP outside of the sexual health clinic. So it means taking it to general practice. It means taking it to maybe community organisations or third sector organisations that work with those groups and perhaps don't have a sexual health focus. So maybe you're working, I don't know, with, with recent migrants or with black African populations. You might not be doing sexual health as a primary thing, but you're working with communities who should know about PrEP and um, could benefit from, from PrEP. So so I think you're right, and I think there is a role for, for primary care, even if it's just awareness-raising and referring on, but I think we need to definitely change our model of provision. One of the things that I, I've, I've certainly found is that not only do other groups are thinking perhaps about black African, heterosexual black African communities, not only do they not know so much about PrEP, even when informed they're... Uh, the way they see it is very different you know i think there's you know there's still a lot of stigma in those communities i think that people have anxieties that you know somebody's you know i'm not this is a, I'm not that kind of person, it's just kind of like promiscuous people that, that, that take this, or I'm worried that somebody's gonna see the medication at home, I'm gonna think that I'm positive or think that I'm promiscuous. So I, I've had a lot of conversations with people who I, again, heterosexual uh, Sub-Saharan Africans, who I think would really benefit from PrEP, and we have a long conversation in the clinic and they seem really interested and seem to get it, and then you give them appointment to come back and then they don't come back. So there's a lot of work I think we need to do about addressing those perceptual issues around PrEP because it's not as acceptable mm. even in uh, people in those groups who would really benefit mm. from it.
1: And they might be groups that GPs are having contact with as you said for other reasons completely unrelated to sexual health and yeah, we might be able to at least start broaching some of those conversations. It, it,
2: exactly and I think and it, and it doesn't necessarily require you know an in-depth Sexual health risk assessment. I mean, I, you know, e- even just thinking about about it in Sub-Saharan Africans or recent migrants. You know, so things that you would know about
0: somebody without having to ask any extra questions. Uh, I saw reports maybe a year or so ago that um, prep use was linked with a reduction in new new incidents or new new cases of HIV in London. Yeah. Um, if that if that is the case and that trend continues, I mean, can you see a day where where PrEP won't be needed anymore? Well, the the answer to that is yes. I mean, if, if we get it right, there
2: should be a day when PrEP won't be needed anymore. We are seeing reductions in HIV diagnoses across the country. Um, I think uh, overall across across the UK in the last couple of years, um, diagnoses have dropped by about twenty percent. But it's most marked. The reduction is most marked in gay men, and it's most marked in gay men in London, where the reduction has been around about forty percent. This is just in the last couple of years, which is really significant and really quite exciting because mm-hmm. we've not seen this before particularly in in, um, in men who have sex with men and it's, it's a real drop because the the, you know, it's not that we're doing fewer tests, we're actually doing slightly more tests and it's not that we're testing people who are at lower risk because actually other STIs like gonorrhea and chlamydia are, are going up in those groups so we're doing more tests mm-hmm. but finding less Infection, which means that there is less infection out there. So prep has contributed to that. It's it's a it's a combination of things that 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 have have caused that. Though, what we call combination HIV prevention, which is fundamentally about the fact that one, we're testing more frequently. Testing is key. So more people have tests, and more people have tests more frequently, so we can diagnose. Existing infection as early as possible, or support people who are HIV negative to stay HIV negative. So we're testing much more and more frequently. We're treating much earlier than we used to. So um, this goes back to the U equals U thing. So now the recommendations uh, are, are to you know start treatment uh, at, at pretty much as soon after diagnosis as the, as the as the individual is ready. So most people will start treatment within a few weeks of their diagnosis now. And, the sooner they start treatment, not only do the do they get well quicker, but the sooner they get an undetectable viral load, and therefore the sooner they become non-infectious to others. So earlier treatment is is is, is having an impact. But PrEP is also having an impact. It's it's quite difficult to work out exactly how much because the, the the years that we're looking at these reductions were when most people were buying their own PrEP. So we don't really have good data on, on how many people were using PrEP, but I think it's you know, significant that the biggest drops we've seen have been in the large central London clinics who see the most gay men who are more likely to have been on PrEP. So I think, you know undoubtedly, PrEP has also contributed to that significant drop. Now, if we're able to maintain that approach, or actually improve or increase it, so test more, treat earlier, give prep to everybody who needs it then you're right we will see and we are beginning to see HIV transmissions drop uh, rates of undiagnosed HIV drop we've, we've seen that as well um, there was a, a big bit of good news around mm-hmm. HIV a few months ago there, there's a UNAIDS target of it's called 90-90-90 which means, and we're supposed to achieve it by 2020, I think, which, which is 90% of people with HIV are diagnosed, 90% of those are on treatment, and 90% of those have an undetectable viral load. Um, the UK's just achieved that target and actually beaten that target quite considerably. So we're now at 92% diagnosed, 98% on treatment, and 97% with an undetectable viral load. So as those numbers get better and better, there will be fewer and fewer people in the population who are a, mm. a risk of transmission. Essentially, you're a risk of transmission to somebody else, obviously, if, if you have HIV and you don't know about it, or if you know about it, you're not on treatment. And so now the total, the proportion of people who don't know about it is getting smaller across the UK. That's just eight uh, percent of everybody living with HIV, and the proportion of people with an with a detectable viral load is getting smaller because we're so, once somebody knows they're positive, you know, treatment services in this country are really good. We're really good at getting people into care, um, uh, keeping them in care, supporting them to to take their treatment and get an undetectable viral load. So we are we are starting to move into a point. Where it is, well, not it started, we are at a point where we can really start to confidently talk about ending HIV transmission in this country. Um, I think a few years ago, people would be slightly laughed out of the room if you'd said that. Um, But it's it's a reality, you know, and actually, you know, the better we get at testing, and it simply put, you know, if you were able to test everybody and you knew who was negative and then gave those who were at greater risk PrEP and you knew who was positive and gave all of those treatment. You know, within a generation, HIV transmission would would end. So, it's a real, it's a reality. It's an achievable reality. So there'll be a point. You know, there, no, there there will be a point when background risk is low enough potentially for us not to need prep, or certainly not to need prep in the mm-hmm. levels that we use it now. You know, in the ten, giving it to tens of thousands of people, mm-hmm. because each individual's risk of acquisition will be much
0: much smaller. Future is um, <clears> that HIV. Levels reduce and it's very available online. Are we going to see a group of, a large group of people who really don't need PrEP taking it anyway? We might do.
2: I, I think you could probably look at lots of areas of healthcare where people go and get their you know, medication that they they don't need. Um, so and I so I think that that you know that but the the onus will then fall on us to make sure that there is the right information out there. Um, and I, I do find this concept of of the point at which people don't need PrEP, or some people don't need PrEP, really interesting, you know, because I'm not quite sure how we would be 100% certain when we'd we'd reach that, but, you know, we we, we make assessments uh, on somebody's need for PrEP based on their risk, which is a a function of the kind of sex they're having, and the likelihood of the people they're having sex with having HIV. Now, as we're seeing HIV rates going down, that risk is going to get less, so we're already on the way to reaching that point where Um, I guess it's more likely that people might take PrEP when they don't need it I mean I think I mean again that's I think it's why I'd really encourage if people are self-sourcing their PrEP to engage with services at the same time you know so not just so you can get the monitoring but so you can be up to date with the the information and you know can discuss risk and you know and reevaluate risk it'll be it'll be nice to see and it can happen that's the, what's the thing that's amazing about things like PrEP is that the you know and the U equals you thing is that the impact is so quick i mean that's why mm. you know they're so cost effective you know the the NHS gets the benefit of of the of the it prevented hiv Transmissions very quickly, mm-hmm. and we see the impact very quickly. You know, so you know we've started. We've now got over, well, probably over ten thousand people uh, on prep in in England on the impact trial. If you look across the UK, that's probably getting towards fifteen to twenty thousand people. That's not including the people who are sourcing it themselves you know that's from a point two years ago when you know it was a it was a fraction of that that's going to be massively impactful you know we're going to we're already seeing that as we mentioned before with this big drop in new hiv diagnoses Mm -hmm. so it's 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 making probably for the first time hiv risk a really dynamic concept you know it kind of used to be very much more static certainly when you looked at the graphs that showed new HIV transmissions amongst gay men up until about 2015, 2016, they were just static for a decade. You know, whatever we were doing, we were obviously preventing infections, but we weren't turning the tide. It was about every year, 2,700, 2,800. Men who are sexual men were acquiring HIV. For a decade, it was flat. So now it's really much more dynamic. So the information that we need to give around what individuals
0: need will, will change quite quickly now. For listeners who want to read more about this or read some guidelines, where would you point them towards? So the first thing I'd
2: recommend would be, just because I co-chaired them, <laughs> with the Beaver BASH, the British HIV Association and the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV PrEP guidelines, which are available on both of their websites. They're bit of a weighty tome I'll just warn people but um, uh, hopefully what we've tend to do what we tried to do with those guidelines is is put you know at the beginning all of the data so if you want the data if you want the studies it's there at the beginning and then about halfway through I think it's from about chapter four or chapter five it, it, it's much shorter it's much more practical things around risk assessment, around safety about about monitoring and, and STI testing there's a, there's a, a section in there also about uh, generics and buying generics online and it's got references around GMC and MHRA guidance about that. So um, I'd recommend that the, the, the beaver bash guidelines I mean there are really lots of really good websites that've got information on so I, I want prep dot um, UK um, it, it has really good basic information which I think is useful for, for clinicians just for a bit of initial info and it's certainly the, the, the website that we'd refer all people who are asking about patients are asking about about PrEP Um, there's prepster which is a really great a great um, you again focus particularly on on people at risk but again clinicians and it's it's quite helpful for Um, I always recommend uh, the AIDS map website Uh, that's a really great website for all things around HIV prevention treatment Um, I use it all the time it's just got it's nicely um, it's not it's got lots of stuff that's that's very layman it's that's focused at people at risk but it's also got stuff that's really useful for clinicians i, I mean i go in there all the time it's got they've got great sum, summaries of papers of conferences and it's really easy to navigate around so that's another good a good resource not just for prep things but for all things hiv related
1: thank you so much michael brady for coming to join us today Um, it was a fascinating discussion Uh, we've been talking about the two articles on hiv post exposure prophylaxis pep and hiv pre-exposure prophylaxis prep are now online they include all of the really useful tables we'll add links to these and all of the resources that michael mentioned in the text below the podcast
0: While you're there, just a quick note to say please do rate and review us. It helps us to know what you like and more importantly, keeps us up the podcast charts which helps other people to find us too.
1: I'm Kat Chatfield.
0: And I'm Tom Nolan. Uh, And I'm Michael Brady. Thanks for for listening. listening.